and welcome. My name is Joe Frost here with my co-host Peter Liners and this is Being Human. So welcome back to the Being Human podcast, where we wrestle with what it means to be human in this current cultural context. We want to wrestle with the reality of living in the intersectional clash of the cultural story with the good, beautiful and true story we read in the Bible. And you can find out more by checking out the website. This is part of a much larger project looking at some of the most challenging issues of what it means to be human in our culture. The website is www beinghumanproject.org No. .co.uk <laughs> .co.uk, I knew that. beinghumanproject.co.uk <laughs> We're there. It's almost like we practiced. Okay, so check it out. Um, and as always, we just want to thank you so much for listening, for sharing with us, um, letting us know what you're thinking offering us reviews, please do continue to help us spread the word about the podcast and about the wider project. So we're in lockdown number 327 or something like that. <laughs> Certainly feels like it, doesn't it? Um, yeah, we're back to the homeschooling, working from home juggle with all of its delights. Um, I think we're just feeling really tired and, and not the kind of tired that a weekend solves, really weary How's it for you? Yeah, definitely share that feeling. I think everybody I talk to just is tired coming back. Christmas was tough for many. We were seeing we got some difficult family news. There's lots of people just saying we just don't have the margin. We don't have the space in our lives to deal with this. Uh, so it's a tough time for sure. And yet the world keeps turning. Indeed, so much so that we are back for another episode. <laughs> Yes, we are. Um, so this season, we have been following the God story through the pages of the Bible, discussing the point of intersection where the cultural stories that we're living in today um, meet with the God story and the stories that we read in the Bible, whether that's through our origin stories, our stories of freedom, our stories of purpose or relationships. Today, we're going to be looking at the idea of justice, a big storyline in the Bible and a big storyline today. So as usual, we certainly will not be short of content on that subject. No, we certainly won't be. I mean, it is interesting, isn't it? Because justice is a massive issue for our culture today and arguably for all cultures always. Each society has at the heart of it a concept of justice. I mean, I, I remember listening to a talk by Stanley Hawass, who said that the starting point for any stable state is a functioning justice system. People have to trust that there is somewhere to go for arbitration to be told fairly what happens if something goes wrong. But different cultures base their understanding of what justice is, what it looks like, how it works on different narratives. And whilst there is often a large degree of overlap, there are also points of clash and disagreement. Ah, so we're back again to different foundation stories. Exactly. So today we are going to explore today's cultural story of justice and we're going to compare that with the biblical story of justice and we are going to see where it takes us. So today's conversation around justice has an awful lot to do with Mark's understanding of power. 
Karl Marx of Little Red Book and Communist fame viewed power as a resource, limited, and therefore only one person or party could hold power at any one time. Now, Marx was concerned with economic power, but today we see Marxist ideas play out in all sorts of relationships and paradigms, in any relationship where there is some form of power or authority, there is often a sense of mistrust, that one person is always at risk at being subjugated to another. One person can be another person's means to an end, oppressor and oppressed, abuser and victim. Yeah, and we, we see that idea play like, all over the place. Uh, black versus blue lives in the US, the Brexit slogans here were all about shaking off the shackles of the EU, taking back control. And the hashtag MeToo campaign really started in Hollywood with media moguls who had the power to make or break young actresses' careers. And then they used that power to enact their sexual fantasies, to force themselves on others. Assuming that, again, because they had this position and power, that would protect them. But finally, thankfully, we're beginning to see justice in that area. Justice becomes the cry then of the powerless to be restored and for recompense. So far, so uncontentious. Marcus Rashford became the surprising hero hero, sorry, um, of struggling families in 2020 as he used his fame and platform to campaign for adequate food provision for children being homeschooled. Those children who would normally get free school meals um, and were at risk of going hungry while at home. The government in England made repeated embarrassing U-turns as the public outcry to feed vulnerable powerless children became deafening. Yeah, and it's hard to argue with the injustice of starving children. Um, But not all cries of injustice are so clear cut. You take something that's a bit more contentious like abortion. The argument is that choice, often seen then as power there, should be with women, my body, my choice. Why should anyone, particularly older white men, tell me what to do? But on the other side is the argument then that the unborn child is powerless, the most marginalised group in society, unable to fight or articulate in any way for their own survival. They are voiceless and utterly dependent then on others to uh, for their own life and so in need of protection. There are so many powers, uh, places sorry, where powers and oppression clash in our culture justice begins to lose all sense of meaning. Marx was primarily concerned with class, but that isn't the only place where power imbalances exist. What about ethnicity, sex, gender, sexual orientation, age, and so on? We are often at a loss to know who is the powerless party in a relationship? Who is it that is in need of justice? And therefore, so often we reduce the idea of power and justice to that of influence or voice. Yeah, that's interesting because we do talk in those terms all the time. We speak up on behalf of the voiceless. We use our platform or we vote or we voice so that we advocate on behalf of others. Yeah, I mean, I even remember back in the day uh, holding up a placard protesting the Iraq war back in the... 2001, 2002, um, declaring not in my name, telling Tony Blair and the world that he didn't speak for me. He wasn't using my voice when he was ordering troops into Iraq to invade. 
Yeah, and I, I gathered more recently with 20,000-odd people at Stormont in Northern Ireland for a, what was called an NI Voiceless event for the onborn. And, and that you know similar idea there, again, you're speaking up for those without a voice, reminded me of a quote um, by the, the author Aaron Hattie Roy. Um, there's really no such thing as the voiceless. There are only the deliberately silenced and the willfully ignored. I, I wonder if that's where this disconnect for justice for so many of us comes from. We're fed one narrative by culture, that to be human is to have whatever you want, to be happy, live your own life, be free and autonomous. And yet so often in life, we have very little say. We have little say in political decisions, in our jobs, even our ability to feed our families or leave our homes. So often we feel silenced or ignored. And in our current cultural storyline, that must mean that we are oppressed. We have become powerless. We are now vulnerable. We are victims. And then once you embrace the identity of a victim, the argument goes that any subsequent action you perform to rid yourself of that oppression, to fight for justice then, is permissible because to overthrow power is an ultimate moral good, whatever the means necessary. And it's really worth emphasizing that if justice then is about power and this uh, this power is exercised through language and through culture, so for example, through laws and media and politics and education and even forms of family, those are all organized to suit the needs to keep those who are in power in that position. And so justice becomes the decentering of those with privilege, the removing of power from the powerful by whatever means are necessary. Because we saw that in the capital as well, didn't we? I mean, on the day that the electoral votes were being confirmed by Congress, those who felt that their votes had been stolen, their voices had been silenced, their power had been taken away from them, they didn't just come to protest, they violently stormed their government in the name of justice. And the impact of that violent uprising has continued for the last few weeks. And the impact of that violent uprising has continued. We've seen the ripples of that all the way through the last few weeks, all the way into the inauguration. And those who uh, were doing that, then when they're critiqued, they respond and they say, but hold on, what about the both Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, sorry, protesters and rioters in the summer? The media and some of the political commentators were supporting, actually, not only the the campaigning, the protest, but actually some of the violence that followed that because they were saying, well, that's what justice demands to overthrow the powerful. Which goes then to our core question of what is justice? Yes, I think this is the heart of where we want to get to. When justice is reduced to simply being about power, who has it and who doesn't, it becomes, I think, an incoherent claim that all morality is culturally constructed and relative, um, but then you kind of claim that your own moral claims are not. Yours are the ones that, that are step outside that system. So by putting people into groups, it is in danger of undermining our common humanity and it risks undermining any kind of personal responsibility and, and sin. Um, it makes all reconciliation all the more difficult because Miroslav Wolf, who's a, the philosopher and, and theologian who's thought a lot about this, says, look, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. So finally, it doesn't resolve the issue of power. That's the real thing. It just changes who has the power, and that's not actually justice. 
It reminds me of what um, church leader Hugh Osgood once said. He said, sin is whatever society currently says is unforgivable. Therefore, it's constantly shifting, but always irredeemable. Yeah. So that is the heart of the problem. So we're asking the question, so what does the God story offer as a different basis for justice and a coherent one for society? probably acknowledge that we are indebted to Tim Keller and a number of articles that he has written helping us think through this episode. He starts by saying there are currently competing visions of justice, as we've articulated, often in sharp variants, and that none of them have achieved anything like a cultural consensus. He's also clear that the Bible has a huge amount to say about justice, but what the Bible says differs in significant ways to the secular alternatives. But there is considerable Christian ignorance about biblical justice. We don't know what the Bible says and how it differs from what our culture says, which means so many of us aren't doing justice at all because we think it's irrelevant, and others see this failure, recognise that the church isn't always recognised for our stance on justice, and then just adopt this, the narratives around us uh, to fill the gap. Yeah, and that's definitely like a huge tragedy. The Bible is fantastic. It's great at justice and talking about justice. And the church is too often not so good at it. Um, one of the people that Tim Keller has a look at is the philosopher and theologian Alistair McIntyre. Um, who's written the book on justice, who's justice, uh, and he wants to better understand that topic and look at him. And, and McIntyre makes the case that justice is fundamentally about morality. In fact, it's actually more than that. It goes right to the heart of human nature and purpose. It goes to the very essence of what it means to be human. That's why we want to pick it up. And that's why justice is so important and therefore so contested. Because unless you know what human beings are for, our purpose, you will never come to any agreement what is good or bad behaviour and therefore what justice is. The secular view is that human beings, we're just here by chance. We're not here for any higher purpose at all. So we're free to make of life whatever we want. But as we've seen, without agreed parameters, there's no good way to argue coherently that any particular behaviour is wrong or unjust. Yeah, and it's a real problem if it's just power. Power is an aspect of justice, but if that becomes a sole focus, we don't get anywhere. And what the God story is saying instead is, hold on, it's rooted, the very, the very concept of justice is deeply rooted in the character of God. He is just, and therefore what he does is just, and we are called to imitate him. Um, there are two words then in, in the Hebrew language that refer to justice, um, but they kind of cover different aspects of it. So again, that's a problem to us because we don't capture the, the breadth of this. So it's Siddiqah or Siddiqe, and then Mishpat are the two. So Mishpat is retributive justice. It's really like the idea of punishment. So when people say, I want justice, that's often what they're, they're calling for is Mishpat, the rule of law through which disputes are settled and um, by rights rather than by might. So when somebody makes that, that, that chant, that, that's usually what they're claiming is mishpat. I want recompense. I want what I'm owed. I want somebody punished for what they did wrong. And so law establishes a set of rules trying to kind of bind us all together and distinguish them between right and wrong, the innocent and the guilty. And when someone breaks those rules, we say, let's see justice. Let's see mishpat. 
An injustice has a cost um, to the victim in some form, and, and Mishpat settles that debt. That's the idea of it. But Mishpat alone cannot create a good society. So we also have Siddiqa, or restorative justice. It's perhaps best translated as right relationships. Um, although former chief rabbi um, Jonathan Sachs, who was sadly passed away, um, it, he says that it can't easily be translated because it, it, it joins together two concepts that in other languages are opposites, namely charity and justice, which is sometimes translated as righteousness, which for many Christians feels like just a, a very heavy jargon word, which carries very little concrete definition. Yeah, so you take a, a pretty well-known verse from the prophets, uh, Amos 5, 24, let justice roll down like water. So that's the mishpat piece. But righteousness, Siddiqui, like an ever-flowing stream. So Sachs is right. He goes on and, and when he talks about Siddiqui to say, look, it's closer to our ideas of social justice. And um, the idea that those who have more than they need must share with uh, some, some of their surplus with those who have less. It's about the balance in relationships summed up when Jesus said, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. This sums up the law and the prophets. So we might say that the biblical river of justice has these two banks, Mishpat and Siddiqui. And the more you establish Siddiqui right relationships, the less need there actually is for the Mishpat, the, the kind of punishment aspect. So we see the coming together of these two aspects of justice as Jesus went to the cross. Mishpat, as he paid the price for our acts of sin, for our injustice, which has separated us from God, the Father, and Siddiqui, uh, as he restores the relationship between humanity and God through the atoning act of sacrifice, literally the at-one-ing, becoming at-one with sin so that we could become at-one with God, relationships restored. Because again, biblically, justice is always leading towards, pointing us towards God's shalom, and that word is often translated peace, but it's it's more than just the absence of war and conflict. Shalom is, is understood in, as, in, in respect to all sorts of relationships that we are in right relationship, right? one with God, with people, with creation. We are in harmony and that leads to and, and releases a sense of flourishing. Uh, Eugene Peterson, when he translates that word shalom, says this, it means wholeness, the dynamic vibrating health of a society that pulses with divinely directed purpose and surges with life transforming love. So it's a lot more than that simple peace. It's a richer, deeper concept that this justice is leading towards. So, so that means that these right relationships need to have the right balance of power and power therefore is a significant aspect of the biblical view of justice. But it's just, it's not its foundation. God is the foundation of the biblical view of justice. The prophets in the Old Testament are constantly <laughs> condemning the religious communities for loud worship, extravagant sacrifices that then simultaneously exploit workers and ignore the cries of the hungry. He talks, they talk about the lack of power uh, in certain aspects of society. And again, Tim Keller for the win, uh, talks about God's concern for what he calls the vulnerable quartet, the orphans, the widows, the foreigners and the poor. In other words, the most marginalised, powerless uh, aspects of society, which is just as true today as it was then. 
those in care, single parents, immigrants, and the poor. And biblical justice then requires that every person be treated according to the same standards and with the same respect, regardless of their class, their race, their ethnicity, their nationality, their gender, or of any other kind of social categories. And this idea that every human had equal dignity and worth was foreign in the ancient Near East and to the Greeks and to the Romans. And we've said it before, but we want to emphasize this. Tom Holland and others have written that ancient cultures, apart from Israel, completely lacked any sense that the poor or the weak might have the slightest intrinsic value. Instead, it was God's people who were supposed to be concerned for those whose humanity, whose purpose, whose nature and whose freedom was being usurped. And God's anger was provoked when that didn't happen. And yet, God's justice is also gracious. This is what Jonathan Sachs was talking about when he talked about these ideas of opposites, of justice and charity combining. Because God is gracious. He's merciful. He's unfair. Jonah, of big fish fame, went to Nineveh, the greatest city of the Assyrian Empire, the empire that had just destroyed the northern kingdoms of Israel, and he'd gone to proclaim God's judgment. But instead of getting justice for his people, Jonah instigated the city's repentance, and then God goes and forgives them. Jonah and Israel do not receive their mishpat, The injustice of God's grace means that with repentance, we are not treated as our sins deserve. And that's the problem with our sense of justice, isn't it? Because we almost see that as unjust. But actually, of course, God's fullness of justice means it's a perfectly just solution. And that's the challenge of forgiveness in this moment to today's concept of justice and the ideas that we have linked to it. We either dismiss a wrong, claiming that it doesn't matter, or we seek restitution, some sort of payment for the cost or, or, or our loss in that moment. But forgiveness isn't dismissal on the one hand or payment on another. It's, it's the recognition that there is a cost, but that cost can't be adequately paid by the perpetrator. And so in that sense, justice is satisfied, but in a very different way than our current concept would understand. So forgiveness, therefore is so utterly one-sided, isn't it? It's offered by the wronged party, irrespective of the actions of the wrongdoer. But forgiveness shouldn't be conflated with reconciliation, with Siddiqui, with this idea of, of reconciliation, of balancing of relationships, because that does require repentance. Biblical forgiveness is neither victim shaming, nor does it protect the abuser. Rather, it is a discipline from Jesus where he commands us to forgive those who have harmed us because God has first forgiven us. But we're also given the mandate of as ambassadors of reconciliation, where we invite people to repentance, to turn away from their wrongdoings, to lose their power so that they can be reconciled and brought back into a relationship with God and with others. So, as we conclude, what can we say about biblical justice? And just as importantly, what is it that we're supposed to do about it? I think, firstly, Biblical justice is about radical generosity. 
When our capitalist individualistic culture says that your money belongs to you or socialism says your uh, money belongs to the state, the Bible says all of your money belongs to God who then entrusts it to you to share it, to use it wisely, to be a steward. Uh, All of our resources, all of our gifts, all of our talents are for us to share. Sabbath, Jubilee, the principle of gleaning, they're all outworkings of this. Biblical principles of rest, of time off and of the welfare system all sought to rebalance the accumulation of wealth, of inheritance tax, of all different sorts of schemes that societies bring in to make sure that if you haven't got enough, you can have enough. And if you've got too much, you're encouraged to share. It's not ours, it's God's. And we should always view what we do with what we've been entrusted for the sake of justice. Yeah, and that's why the prophets go on so much. I think about Sabbath and Jubilee. That is the fundamental thing. You have not obeyed the laws on that because that's about sharing and that's about rest. That stops accumulation. And you haven't looked after the widows and the orphans, the most marginalized, the, the, the quartet that you were talking about earlier. And so the prophets come back again and again to those messages of radical generosity. Those are designed to stop the system of accumulation, to stop the system of privilege for many. Uh, Sabbath, Jubilee, and gleaning is the welfare state. That's going around and picking up afterwards. And that's where we get those ideas from. The right to buy scheme in the UK comes from an understanding of Jubilee. Whether it's a good one or not, the idea is those can be rolled into modern practice. And it's incredibly exciting to see how we implement radical generosity in this world. So then secondly, we have this idea of universal equality. Biblical justice requires that every person is recognised as bearing God's image. We each Every single one of us share in his nature. So many uh, lawyers, philosophers and and, uh, academics have, have argued that human rights is ultimately grounded in the respect that every person has worth. Uh, talks of, of human rights properly understood, uh, it's biblical language. And it's, it's been part of our history in the West for so much longer than the Enlightenment. Justice with respect to the, the fact that every single person has inalienable rights is central to the good news of both the Old and the New Testament. Totally. So we build on that equality and the dignity, and then that moves us into advocacy for those kind of causes. Biblical justice is about significant, life-changing advocacy, speaking up on behalf of the poor and the marginalized. Psalms talks about blessed is the one who gives active consideration to the weak and to the poor. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Defend their rights, it says in Proverbs. Sadike again, that word of the poor and the needy. So we're, we're back to the, the sense of the, the silence and the, those who are willfully ignored. And, and we actually get to give voice to their needs. This call to advocacy recognizes that that it's a fact of our fallen world is that it is highly uneven in terms of the distribution of opportunity and resources. It, it recognizes and assumes that there is in fact oppression and, and, and that equality and dignity are going to have to be worked for. And so our advocacy will meet some of those immediate needs of those around us. It will empower people and um, to be able to speak up for themselves and will take on some of the social structures um, that will that perpetuate disadvantage to certain groups. Which then links us to that final idea of biblical justice around the idea of responsibility, both corporate and individual. Uh, one of the basic definitions of justice is giving people what they're due, what they're owed. 
But where does the responsibility sit for that? Is that only our responsibility for our own actions or for our own sins? Or are we also complicit and responsible in the sins of others, in the social structures that disadvantage certain aspects of our society? Uh, where does that, how does that responsibility navigate itself? And Keller got into some trouble for these articles that he wrote, and because uh, he, he's he's quite strong on some form of corporate responsibility. Um, we have ties and we have bonds and we have responsibilities to and for others. Um, he quotes John Piper at one point supporting his case uh, in relation to race, which was some of what he was writing these essays about. If generations of racial, cultural pride and self-righteousness are deeply entrenched in the hearts of individuals, and if we are social creatures who then form these institutions and these structures, then we should expect to see structural and not just individual racism. There are there are structural things that will perpetuate sin. And so he argues that the, the left believes, that he, he's oversimplifying here, but the left believes unequal outcomes are virtually always due to injustice, while the right believes unequal outcomes are virtually always due to personal responsibility. And actually, if you read his essays, what he's saying, look, in reality, it's much more complex than that. It's much more nuanced than that. And we need to wrestle with that fact. So how do we apply this onto the practicalities? Yeah, well, I like Keller. One of the things he suggests is the challenge is to start with the church um, because no one's going to listen to us as Christians calling society to be more just in terms of social relationships if within the church itself those relationships are just as flawed and, and just as unjust. <laughs> um, we are to be that partial glimpse, that first fruits of what is to come. What will humanity look like under Jesus' kingship? That's what the coming kingdom means in terms of justice. So while the church's responsibility absolutely is to evangelize and to disciple through through God's word, that disciple making, that training has to motivate us. It has to equip us as Christians to do justice, or it's actually not being true and faithful to God's word. So we do need to to do better at that that, that, that work. And part of that then is, is not just starting with the church, but listening. We need to get better at listening on issues like race or, or domestic violence or, or on abortion we need to listen to those who've experienced this differently. Even if we, and maybe especially if we disagree with them, that's got to be part of our process is to listen better. Which for me leads on to, I think, my uh, area of practicality is this issue around judgment and forgiveness. Who am I graceless towards? Whose voices do I dismiss or just instantly judge out of prejudice? Um how am I better? Uh, how can I be better at being gracious, especially on platforms like social media platforms? Social media is not getting any friendlier. <laughs> and we have seen that um, just time and time again as the, the heat and the discord uh, turns up so much. The most damage is done with, with friendly fire of Christians attacking Christians, of knocking each other down, of not presuming the best of the other person, but instantly having a read of text and inferring tone. And I, I think just for, for myself and for others, like we just need to think. Think before we tweet. Would I say this to that somebody's face? If I'm tweeting an institution, do I recognize that there is a person who is going to be receiving that notification, who's going to be reading that message? Could I do this better by DM or even better by picking up the phone and speaking with someone, having a conversation that's nuanced, that's articulate, that's gracious, that's compassionate? The pandemic means that we're not 
easily meeting people face to face at conferences or events or even just in the street. And I think that's actually having a repercussion that people are becoming bolder in what they say because it feels like there's a, a distance between them and others. And it's getting pretty rude. So how do we show grace, affirm the dignity of another, especially, especially if we disagree with them? Totally. And we're both on social media and we know the realities of this. I've got a phone call tomorrow because a friend said to me, ring that person who there's a disagreement with on social media. Let, let's have the conversation. Let's see what I can learn from that person. What do I need to understand differently? And absolutely, I think this is really critically important. And I think the final thing for me is we need to get stuck in. You know, find something local, something you're passionate about. In this season, I know it's particularly difficult and you can feel like, well, all I can do is the social media thing. Well, like, okay, let's get behind Marcus Rashford's campaign, but also see how can I provide food for somebody locally? Is there something I can do that's tangible and hands-on? And I think it's worth reading these pieces about justice that Tim Keller and others have written. You know, it might take an hour of our time to read through what Tim Keller's written, but I mean, he's wrestling with some really good stuff. We need to think better because the Bible has a huge amount to say and we need to be provoked to think a bit more about it. And ultimately, let's just be kind, kind to ourselves and kind to each other and seek God's character and recognize it as it is presented to you in other people. Uh, let's be gracious to each other and to ourselves. So that's it from us. Thanks so much for listening. Um, do subscribe, like, share, all the rest of it, and we will catch you next time. God bless. Be blessed. Be blessed.